Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit OutreachChurch.net for downloads and service information. Good morning. How are you guys? Yeah? Good? Yeah. We're awesome. Every day is a good day, right? It really is, honestly. If, we de- if you wake up and decide that today is a good day, rather than waiting till the end of the day to judge whether it was or not, you'll end up having good days more often. I promise you, if you wake up in the morning and say, this is going to be a good day, this is the day that he made, and I will rejoice and be glad in it. It's not a throwaway day. It's not a day that he intends for at the end of it for me to say, well, I survived that one. He intends for us to live every day full of the knowledge that he created us for this day and this day for us and to actually enjoy everything that happens. Not that we enjoy everything that goes on around us, but we enjoy the fact that even while things are going on around us, we have him. We have his promise and it doesn't define who we are. You're not defined by what goes on around you. You're not defined by what people do to you. What defines us is our response. Whether Is it Jesus, right? When you squeeze me, does Jesus come out or, or does something that doesn't look anything like Him come out? And if something that looks nothing like Him comes out, can we be surprised when people don't want Him? Because what they've seen is a mutant. It's not truth. And so, I, I would challenge you guys just to decide every single day when you wake up in the morning. Set your mind on the fact that God created you, that you are lucky to be alive and living today. That it is an absolute gift to have today and not to just, not to waste it. Not to just try to get through it. Don't put your happiness off for someday when or when this happens or when that happens. But realize that you can have every bit of the joy of the Lord that He intends for you to have on that day today. He never intended for you to sit around waiting for a magical day to come where suddenly you'd be happy. Because the joy of the Lord is our strength and we need to be strong every single day, which means we need His joy, His peace, His righteousness, His love every single day so rather than waking up and letting your day happen to you and going home at the end of the day and deciding whether or not it was a good day why not wake up in the morning decide it's going to be a good day and then go happen to your day and realize that everything that i walk into i carry the full power and authority of the heaven of the kingdom of heaven with me and i'm not going to allow what happens around me to influence who i am or who i'm going to be I admire people that can live like that, that, that can be in a situation where it's, it's maybe more difficult than others. It's easy in here, right? You're surrounded by people that are like, whoa, praise the Lord with you, right? It's a whole other thing when you go into an environment where everybody maybe isn't on that page, where everybody's not, maybe not praise the Lord with you. But the thing about the gospel is it's the same no matter where we go. It gives us the power and the ability to live the same, to live above the circumstances, to live above the environment that we go into. Everybody's so worried about, oh, the environment. You know what the truth of the matter is? When you walk in, the Spirit of God walks in with you, and it really doesn't matter what the environment's like. I have never in my life walked into a room, flipped on a light, and the environment of the room cancel out the light and the darkness get too dark where the light can't shine through i've always seen the light dispel the darkness and things change when the presence of light comes into a room you can't if there's light in the room you can't flip a switch to turn the darkness up because it's gone when the light's there when you walk into the room the, the light of god has walked into that room with you because he said that he would come and dwell in you that the presence of god would live and dwell inside of you and that's why you meet people and they're so amazed when when you live above circumstance and they'll say, like I was talking to a friend the other day and he said, yeah, someone told me the other day, man, you just seem to have this peace no matter what's going on. 
That should be a a statement that's recurrent in our lives, that people around us should say, you know what, I've noticed you, I've watched you, I've seen that your life hasn't all been unicorns and rainbows. You've gone through some stuff, you've had bad things around you happen, but I've noticed one thing that no matter what you're going through, no matter what you find yourself in, you seem to have this peace and this joy that's irreplaceable, that's unshakable. And that's because of what we sang about, that my, my soul has an anchor in Him. I'm anchored, I'm rooted, I'm grounded in His love. And that's what flows through me. And when his love is flowing out of me, it's really hard for anything bad to flow into me. It's when his love stops flowing in and flowing out of me that I become stagnant, and then it's possible for things to start flowing back into me. Turn a hose on, full blast, and let the water come rushing out of it, and then try to shove dirt down into the hose. I promise you it's not going in there. Because the flow coming out is so strong. Because the flow coming in is just running through and flowing out. But you turn that hose off and you tip it up and you start pouring dirt in there. And I guarantee if there's nothing coming into that hose to flow out of it, the dirt starts getting down in there and it starts getting clogged up. It starts getting dirty. Keep the love of God flowing into your life and out of your life. Not just in. You can't just be filled just to walk around fat and happy on the love of God. And we're not to be gluttons that just consume for ourselves, but that love that flows into us that should then flow out of us. And I pray that every day we would wake up and just walk around realizing with our eyes wide open, seeing what God sees and experiencing what God wants us to experience and allowing His love to flow through us into people. You don't have to worry about their response. That's not your responsibility. Jesus never called us to results. He called us to love. He never said at the end of the day, decide whether it was worth it or not by the way people responded to you. That's not love, that's manipulation. People know when they're being manipulated. People know when you're doing something for a response. They can tell, but when they meet the real deal and it's the love of God flowing through you that says, I love you because I love you because I love you. And it really doesn't matter to me how you respond to me. I'm going to continue to love you. This is so powerful about that, the story that we told the other week about the guy that his boss just absolutely was taking advantage of him and, and was trying to run him off and was stealing money from him and treating him badly and cursing at him and angry and ignoring him and trying to run him off like he'd run off everybody else in the 70 years he's been alive on this planet. He's ran off all of his family. He has nobody's on his fifth or something marriage, fourth or fifth marriage, and he's never really actually loved anybody. And so every time people get close to him, he just runs them off because he's incapable of understanding how someone could love him. He feels completely unworthy of being loved, and so he just runs people off out of his life. And when he tried to do that with this guy, this guy gets down on his knees in front of him and tells him, you're not going to run me off like everybody else in your life. I'm going to love you. And there's nothing you can do about it. That changes things. People aren't expecting that. Because when people treat you badly, what they're used to is being treated badly in return. Because that's the way the world loves. But when we love like Jesus, it means, you know what, it doesn't really matter to me how you respond. Sure, I'd love for you to respond nicely. And I like when you do, but it doesn't matter. If you don't, I'm still going to love you. I'm not going to decide it wasn't worth it. Because you didn't respond the way I want you to respond. Because the truth of the matter is, is a lot of times the way people are responding on the outside isn't really telling the truth about what's going on on the inside. So many times people respond on the outside in a way that would make you think that nothing's happening on the inside, but everything's happening on the inside. And because they're so afraid of what's happening in their life and what's confronting their life, because they're feeling something they've never felt before, they don't know how to react, so they try to push you away to make it stop. And you just keep loving them, and it just keeps boiling over, and then pretty soon, you know, everything changes. Don't ever judge based on people's response, whether it was worth it. Judge whether God told you to do it or not. If he said to do it, then it's worth it every single time. Yeah. That was for somebody here that was free. It wasn't in the notes. Um, 
I have to go back a lot of times and listen to the message, even though I hate hearing the sound of my own voice, because so much of what I say wasn't in my notes, and it's just as I'm speaking, it's coming out, and I go back, and I'm like, oh, that was good. <laughs> and I can say that without being conceited, because I truly believe that I'm not up here just saying stuff that's mine. I believe that the Spirit of God speaks through me, and that, that I'm speaking things that He's giving me, and speaking wisdom that's beyond my own wisdom, and speaking truth that's beyond my own truth. And so... Um, so when I say that, I don't mean it conceited. I, don't, I, I really don't like hearing the sound of my voice. I would rather hear my message preached by someone else, and then I could listen to it easier, you know, and I critique my own voice and think, you sound like such a nerd. I'll be shocked if anyone comes back on Sunday. And then half of you do, and my faith in humanity is restored. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We, we have a joke that our church shows up and shifts half one Sunday, half the next, and uh, but I'm praying and I'm believing that that's changing, that people are being drawn to come every single week. Um, and, and there's no condemnation for me if they don't. So um, we've been talking about covenant for a while. We're, we're at the second to last step of the covenant. And this week we're going to be talking about the, the raising of monuments, the making of memorials, the building of altars. Um, this was an important step in the covenant. Um, and before we get into God's Word, we're going to be in Genesis 31. Um, and we're going to be reading from 44 through 53. So Genesis 31, 44 to 53. But before we dive into the Word, um, let's just stop for a minute and kind of settle ourselves and, and prepare to hear from His Word and, and receive from Him. God, we thank You for who You are. God, for Your love for us. For this story that we have of Your love and Your dedication to humanity that flows from the beginning of the first verse to the end of the last. God, that throughout history, we can see your heart for humanity, for mankind. You can see your heart for us, for me. God, I pray that as we talk today about the building of memorials, the covenant that we have with you, the cross of Jesus, God, that our eyes would just be opened, that our hearts would be refreshed, that our souls would be cleansed, God, that we would just have such a, a new, fresh love for who you are and what you've done for us, God, that our lives truly can't be the same because we're changed. I thank you for that. I ask that you would just open our ears to hear, our minds to be able to understand, and our hearts to receive everything you have. God, that we would be good soil, that we would produce fruit, that the world would taste and see that you're good because of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're open to Genesis 31, uh, verse 44, if not, it'll be up on the screen overhead. Uh, it says, so now, come let us make covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. This is Jacob and Laban. Huh? Sorry, what? Oh, I thought someone said something, sorry. <laughs> I'm always afraid that maybe the words on the, th- on the screen aren't matching what I'm saying, and then when someone says something, it kind of freaks me out. The, the, the back story of this, I just wanted to say, um, is Jacob and Laban. Laban is the father of Jacob's wife, and and he's been mistreating Jacob uh, for a long time now. And we're, we'll talk about exactly what he was doing in a second. But, but they, they get together and, and they decide that they're going to make a covenant because they've got to squash this, this animosity between them, this anger and this strife and this bitterness between them. They have to find a way to settle this thing so that they're not constantly in, at war, so that there's not constantly unrest. And so he says, so now come, let us make covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. Then Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. So they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Now Laban called it Yeger Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. 
Laban said, this, is a witness, this heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore it was named Galid and Mizpah, for he said, May the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent one from the other. If you mistreat my daughters or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Laban said to Jacob, Behold this heap and behold the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass by this heap to to harm you. And you will not pass by this heap and this pillar for me to harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. So there's this dispute, there's this animosity between them. And in Genesis 31.4, it says what happened. It says, Then Jacob went to Rachel and Leah, uh, to his flock in the field, and said to them, I see your father's attitude, he's talking about Laban, that is not friendly towards me as formerly. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. However, God did not allow me to hurt, allow him to hurt me. So here they have this dispute. Laban's taking advantage of his son-in-law. He's not treating him right. He's told him that he will pay him a certain amount. And ten different times, Jacob's done everything that's required of him. He has served Laban with all of his strength, given his life for him. And in return, he's been mistreated and he's been his wages have been changed and the agreement that they had hasn't been kept and Laban has a bad attitude towards him and Jacob notices this and so they get together and they decide that they're going to they're going to do something about this and Jacob says to his kinsmen to gather stones there would have been other times that he would have told people to gather stones right It would have been for punishment. It would have been for judgment. It would have been to condemn the person who had done something wrong. And he would have said, gather stones. And everyone would have went and gathered stones. And they would have brought them. And they would have found the person guilty and convicted them and carried out punishment upon them. But in this case, Jacob displays the heart of God towards Laban. And when he says, gather stones, it's not so that they can stone Laban. It's so that they can build a memorial to this agreement that they're going to make, which says, from this day forward, as long as these stones stand here, it will be a reminder that every time that I come to these stones, I will not pass them to go to you and harm you. When I walk up to this place, it was a central place. It was a crossing point between the two men. And they put a pile there and they made an oath that they would not harm each other, that they would love each other. And he said, if I come to these stones, it will remind me that as I pass by them, I will not do so to harm you. And as you come to these stones, it's a reminder to you that you won't pass by them to harm me. You guys remember another time when people gathered stones? See, here instead of his sin, instead of what he did wrong, being judged and convicted, and instead of him being punished for what he had done wrong, Laban receives mercy. He receives what he doesn't deserve, right? He doesn't get what he deserves because Jacob shows him mercy. And he says, you know what? You've mistreated me. It's true. You've done things wrong to me. But because I love you and because I love your daughters, I am not going to carry out the punishment upon you that you deserve. In fact, I'm going to show you mercy and you're not going to get what you deserve because of my love for you. And so they gathered stones, but they left them in a pile. And that pile stood there as a memorial to the grace that was shown, to the mercy that was shown to Laban that day. And it was always a reminder. I remember another time when people had gathered stones and they came to find someone guilty and they were going to punish somebody. And there stood Jesus. And they said, we caught this woman in adultery. In other words, just like Laban, she'd done something wrong. She deserved to be punished. And the, and the punishment for the crime was that she would be stoned. 
And Jesus doesn't say anything to them. He just gets down and He writes on the ground something. And what He wrote convicted their hearts. And then Jesus stands up and looks at them and says, you who is without sin, you cast the first stone. And it says that one by one, they laid down their stones, they dropped their stones, and they went on their way, the oldest from the youngest. And when they left, there would have been a pile of stones laying there, and there would have been a woman who was supposed to be convicted, who was supposed to be condemned, standing there under grace and under mercy because she didn't receive what she deserved because she was shown mercy and grace by Jesus. And there would have been a pile of stones that stood there. And every time she saw that pile of stones, she would have remembered the day that Jesus rescued her from having her life taken. Jesus rescued her from condemnation. Jesus rescued her from being punished for what she had done and extended her mercy and grace on that day. And it's the same thing here. Every time Laban or or Jacob would see that, he had every reason to take revenge on Laban. He had every reason to treat him badly. Later in Genesis 35, God would speak to Jacob. He tells him, go to Bethel. That Bethel was the place where God had spoken to Jacob when he was fleeing from Esau. Why would he tell him to go to Bethel? Why did he say return to this place? It was because this was a place where he had met with God before. And he had named it Bethel, meaning surely God is here. God is in this place. And so God says, Jacob, I want to talk to you. I want to reveal more of who I am to you. I'm going to enter into covenant with you. I want you to return to that place. And so... In Genesis 28:13, it says, And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done with you what I've promised. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. There is none other. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning, and he took the stone that he had placed under his head out and set it up as a pillar, poured oil on its top, and he called the name of that place Bethel. It had previously been the name of the city had been Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. This stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house and and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. So this was the first time he came to this place and he named it Bethel, the place where God dwells. And his life was changed on that day when he met God there and God spoke to him and declared who he would be for him. And Jacob declared who he would be to God and who God would be to him. And so when God makes a promise and he wants to change Jacob's life, he wants to bring him back to this place where he previously met with him, where their relationship began. And so he brings him back to Bethel. Why does he bring him back to that place? I promise you it's because God is always wanting to bring us back to the place where our lives were changed by him. It doesn't matter how far we go, where we go. It doesn't matter in our minds how far we feel like we've drifted. When God is speaking to us and calling us, He always wants to bring us back to that place where we first met Him, where we first understood who He was and who He wanted to be for us. It's why David says, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. It's why Jesus says to the church in Laodicea that you've forgotten your first love. 
He always wants to bring them back to that place where everything changed when you met God. He always wants to do that. He brings Jacob back to the place where everything in Jacob's life changed, where any God that he had heard of or that he had thought of became paled and distant in the light of the God that was speaking to him and the promises that he made. He said, you'll give me food and you'll give me clothing. Why? Because God's promise was always to provide and to protect. He says, if you'll give me food and you'll give me clothing and you'll keep me safe, you'll be my God. And God had already promised to do these things for him. Why? Safety is protection. Food and clothing is provision. It's always the promise that God will provide and protect. It's always His request that we would trust and obey. And so He brings Jacob back there to this place, this memorial that He had made. And He speaks to him. And once again, Jacob's life has changed and he enters into covenant with God. There was a time when David counted the men of Israel. God told him not to. Remember God told David in the very beginning. He said, listen to me. I will protect you. I will go before you. I will destroy your enemies. But this one thing you cannot do. Never count the men of your army when you see the other army raise up in battle against you. Why? Because he didn't want David to trust in the number of men he had or the size of his army. He wanted his trust and his faith to be completely in him. And so he said, when you face another army and they line up and they start declaring to you how many of them there are, don't be tempted to turn and count your own men to decide whether or not you can face them in battle. Just simply trust me and obey me and I'll always provide and protect for you. And so he told David this. But one time, there was a really, really huge army that was coming against him. And so David ordered that all the men of Israel that were going to fight would be counted. He disobeyed what God had told him to do. God never called him to be a master war general. He called him to be a faithful shepherd. He never called him to be a strategist that had everything figured out. He called him to be a listener that did what God told him to do. God has never called you to have everything in your life figured out. To be able to sit down and say, this is what's going to happen and this is why and this is why and this is how he's going to do it. Because the minute we start thinking we have it all figured out, our need for him to speak to us stops. And now we've headed off on our own journey and said, okay, God, this is what I'm going to do and this is how I'm going to do it. And the thing is, God may have called you to do that thing, but in a very different way. And the second you think you have it all figured out, Your need to hear His voice stops. You're not called to be a master strategist. He says, my sheep hear my voice, they know my voice, and they follow me. You're called to know His voice, hear His voice, and follow Him. And that may look way different than what you thought it looked like to follow Him. How many of you guys, your life looks exactly like you thought it would at 18? Am I the only one? Yeah, at 18, I was a very different me, right? I had dreadlocks about down to here, my bottom six teeth. My mom's here. Yeah, I love you. Um, (laughs) She is a saint who deserves stained glass. Um, And I mean that. I I tell people that all the time. I say my mom is the closest thing to a saint that I've ever met in real life. And... um, but the truth is we all are, right? Because we're being called saints in God. Um, but, but she's like one of those people that deserves like to be called Saint Brenda and have stained glass put in churches about her for what she put up with me and, and how she loved me even when I was so unlovable. But, but I had dreadlocks down to here and I, my bottom six teeth were gold and, and, and I just, I thought I was, yeah, I thought I was something, you know, and I ran around like, just living a completely depraved lifestyle. And, and my little brother did it with me. He was the bad influence on my life. He's here too. <laughs> so, yeah, the one that saved me and the one that dragged me into it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I might have dragged him into it too. Um, but my life at 18 looked nothing like it does now. And then one day God spoke to me and said, 
that I should move to South Carolina. I didn't have a blueprint that said go to South Carolina. I didn't have any book of the Bible that I could open up to that would tell me to move to South Carolina. It's not like I could say, well, God said here in the first chapter of Chronicles that I should go to South Carolina. And for us to believe that God doesn't speak to us anything that's outside of the Word of God eliminates the ability for Him to speak to us in our daily lives outside of things that are written. Now, He's not going to speak something that contradicts His Word, but I promise you I couldn't find anything in His Word that would tell me to move to that state. I could find something that would confirm it, flee from evil, right? And the lifestyle that I was living was evil. What I was surrounded by was evil. And so I could find something in the Word of God that would confirm that, but I couldn't look to it and say, this is why, because God spoke to me here from this page and said to go there. We have to be able to listen, and we have to be able to to hear His voice, and we have to believe that He really does want to speak to us even in the little things. And then when we hear His voice, just be obedient, even if you don't have it all figured out. I had everything that I owned, which consisted of a couple of trash bags full of clothes, a couple of surfboards, a skateboard, and like 30 bucks or something loaded into my little Isuzu truck and just hit I-95 north because I knew that God had told me to come here. And it's a long, drawn-out story, and maybe I'll tell it sometime in here because there's people here who haven't heard it. But, but anyways, the point is, is that at 18, I didn't have anything figured out. I had no idea what my life was going to look like. And the beautiful thing about that is, is that God had never asked me to have everything figured out. He had never told me, okay, I want you to sit down and write out your life plan and then go live it. In fact, I think it's the exact opposite. I think sometimes we get so bent on what our life plan is that we forget the fact that he's the one who gave us that life to begin with and that his plan may be way different than ours. And even worse than, than failing at things we're called to is probably succeeding at things that we're not called to because if the enemy can just keep opening doors in front of us that we're not supposed to go through, it's a whole lot easier than him trying to hold shut doors that we are. If he can get us off track and he can get us off doing our own thing, even if we're being a wild success in our own mind, it may look nothing like what God calls success in our lives. Don't think you have to have it figured out. But David this once decides, you know what, I'm just going to do this thing. I'm just going to count the army. I'm just going to see if I have enough people to face them in battle. And so God sees that. And he sends someone to speak to David, a man named Gad. And he sends Gad to speak to David. And he said, because you've done this evil thing, You'll be punished. The nation of Israel will be punished. The whole nation would be punished by the, for the disobedience of their king. And he said, you get to choose the punishment. Would you, like to, would you rather have famine in the land for three years? Would you rather have the, be turned over to the hands of your enemies for three months? Or would you rather have the hand of the Lord come against your people for three days? So David chooses the punishment. He says, I don't want to be turned over to the hand of my enemy because I trust in God. He's faithful. He's true. He's just. And so I'd rather be handed over and have pestilence in the land from God for three days. Yet before the three days is over, it says as the, army, as the angel of the Lord went to destroy the city of Jerusalem, he came to a place, and it was a threshing floor of a man named Ornan the Jebusite, and he stopped there, the angel stopped there, and God, it says, he looked and he was sorry. It says actually in the King James Version, it says he repented at that time. And he stayed the hand of the angel and said, don't go any further, that's enough, no more. Before the three days was over, before the time period with which they were supposed to face, before the city was destroyed, before the angel of the Lord came and destroyed the city, God looked down and He saw something that made Him say to the angel, Stop. Stay your hand. Don't. As the sword was lifted over the city of Jerusalem, as it was about to be destroyed, God looks down and says, Don't do that. Stop. I know what I told you, but now I'm giving you a new order. Stop. 
Well, that's a good thing. If the angels need to listen to hear God, even if he told you one thing at one time, if now he's telling you a different thing, it's really important. Because if the angel would have said, well, I have my orders from God and would have shut his ears off and not listened from heaven, he would have went on and did something he wasn't intended to do. And there's a lot of times in our lives where God calls us to something and we don't even know why he's called us to it because a short time later he says, okay, that's enough. And you may think that maybe you missed God. No, the truth of the matter is, is maybe God was just sending you somewhere for a short period of time. He had something he wanted you to accomplish or wanted to accomplish in you. And maybe he was just testing to see if you would be faithful when he called you to do something, even if it didn't make sense. There's something about proving faithfulness to God, about trust and about loyalty. It was why Moses was the man that he was. It's why Moses got to actually see God and speak to God face to face. God said, if there be a prophet among you, I'll speak to them darkly and dimly as in a vision or a dream. But not so with my servant Moses, for he is faithful in all of Israel. That word faithful in the Hebrew means trusted, proven, trustworthy, loyal. There was something about Moses and his trustworthiness that he had built with God and the loyalty that he had showed to God, that God trusted him to speak to him face to face, not dimly. So if God's telling you to do something, do it. But if God tells you to stop, stop. And so he says to the angel, stay your hand and stop. It says in First Chron- yeah. First Chronicle 21, 26. I, I mean, seriously, because the truth of the matter is, is if, if, if hearing God is what made you do it, then the only thing that should stop you from doing is hearing God tell you to stop, right? But if he tells you to stop, you should stop. Too many people bow out of things early because it gets hard or because it isn't the glamorous thing that they thought it was going to be. Listen, serving God is not always glamorous. In fact, it rarely is. Look at the way Jesus came into the world. Far from glamorous. He's born into a bunch of of animal stink and smell and noises in a dirty little place. The manger is not this clean hay that we see at the manger scenes, okay? It's where the animals ate. They would drool they would do their business while they were eating. Okay, if you've ever been to a barn, you know that while it's coming in one end, it can be going out the other. It wasn't this beautiful thing that we envision it to be. It was dirty. It was smelly. It wasn't glamorous. It wasn't as if Mary sat there just glowing angelically and going, ah, as she gave birth. Sometimes God calls us to do something and we think, yes, I'm going to do this and wow, it's just going to be this. And we get a picture in our mind of what it's going to look like to serve God and the reality of it confronts our picture and then we have to determine whether or not we're going to continue to do what God's called us to do. The truth of the matter is, is whether it looks like what we thought or not, if we heard his voice, we have to be faithful to continue. And the only reason we should stop is if he says to stop. It's like when people come to church here and then they say, I just, I really feel like God's telling me it's time for me to go somewhere else. That's awesome. If God brought you here, then he should be the one that tells you it's time to go somewhere else. And maybe you came here and learned something. Maybe you came here and deposited something. And now he's got a different assignment for you. But if God did bring you here, then the only thing that should take you from here is God. Not a fence or, well, it was a little cold in the building last week. And I believe there's probably a church out there whose thermostat agrees with my body more. Just get a sweater. Right? I mean, geez, if that's all it takes for the enemy to get you off track, he's making the building a little bit cold. I promise you, he'll make sure there's plenty of cold buildings wherever you go to get you as far from God's plan as he can. If all it takes is somebody not saying the right thing to you or, or maybe walking by you in a hallway for you to end relationship with them because, well, they didn't say hi to me. They obviously must have a problem with me. If they got a problem with me, I have a problem with them. If you're touchy, you'll get touched your whole life. If you can be offended, you'll be offended your whole life. If all it takes is somebody saying something to you that you don't like or not saying something to you that you wish they would have, the enemy will make sure there's always people going to cross your path and do those things to you. Because if that's all it takes to get you off what God's called you to do, then you're just an easy target and he's going to keep on targeting you. 
So just make up your mind that if God called me to something, it doesn't matter what it is. The only thing that's going to get me away from it is him calling me away from it. The sooner you do that, the more simple and less complicated your life will become, I promise you. So David gets instructed to go and buy the land, right? God's, he's, the, the prophet comes to him and says, you're to go buy this land, this, this threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, and you're there to build an altar. An altar. So in First Chronicles 21, 26, um, it says, Then David built an altar to the Lord there. He goes and buys the land, and it says he built an altar to the Lord there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And he called to the Lord, and he answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of the burnt offering. The Lord commanded the angel, and he put his sword back in its sheath. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he offered sacrifice there. So here's a place where God shows mercy to Israel. because of They deserved, because of the wrongdoing of their king, they all were going to suffer for it, and they deserved to receive God's judgment. And yet, God shows them mercy here. Why here? Why did the angel stop here? Why Was it just a coincidence that he stopped at this place, the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite? Why was this place? Why when God looked and saw his angel at that place, what happened in that moment that God stopped and told the angel not to do what he had told him to do earlier? It's not coincidental. It's, it's, if you turn to 2 Chronicles 3.1, You'll see where, what that place was to become. And, and it says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord. Second Chronicles 3.1 Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. At the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he began to build on the second day in the second month of the fourth year of his reign. When God looks down, he sees the place where the temple would be constructed. It's Mount Moriah. This is where David, now we know where this place was, this threshing floor. And so when God looks down, his angel is at the very spot where the temple of God would be constructed one day. But if that's just in the future, then what was it that caused him to pause then? What did he see that reminded him of something? What did he see that made him repent? What did he see that made him do the opposite of what he said he was going to do originally? Mount Moriah. Turn to Genesis 22. Genesis 22, verse 1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. Mount Moriah, the place where Abraham was tested by God and proved himself faithful. The place where man said, I won't hold anything back even if it costs me my son, if that's what I have to sacrifice, if that's what you're calling me to. Where man opened the way for God to be able to send his son. Where man proved himself faithful is on Mount Moriah, this very place. And so God, who sits outside of time, remember he says he sees the beginning from the end. The end from the beginning is not like us. He doesn't see things as they happen linearly. So he sees Abraham offering up Isaac. Isaac on the altar at Mount Moriah. He sees David making an offering and a sacrifice on this place. And he sees the day that that Solomon starts the temple there where Jesus would be tested and found worthy. And he sees all three of these things at once in one place. And there's a monument there. There's a memorial there. There's an altar there. And it does what memorials are supposed to do. And God sees that and he remembers the promise that he made to Abraham. He remembers the promise that he made to David. He remembers the promise to Abraham's seed. And he sees all of this at one time. And suddenly from heaven the voice comes and he tells the angel stop where you are because all at once he sees where man was faithful 
where man built an offering, an altar, and where the very temple that his son would be found guilty, where his life would be changed forever, where he would be beaten, where our reproach would be upon him, where our sickness would be placed upon him, where he would take stripes on his back for our healing. And God sees all of these things at once. And he's reminded of the promise. He's reminded of the covenant not to harm. And so he says, stop, do not destroy the city. Don't go any further. Isaiah 46, I am God, there's no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And these ancient and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established. So he looks down and in that moment he shows mercy. Because see, there was disobedience by one man which brought judgment to all the people. And so God, when he looks down, he gives mercy and says, I'm not going to give them what they deserve. I'm going to show them mercy. And see, in the old covenant, all we could receive from God was mercy. That was you don't receive what you deserve. You don't get the punishment that you deserve because of God's mercy. But on this side of the cross, because of the obedience of one man, a whole nation of people who deserve to be punished don't get it because on this side of the cross, we have grace. On the other side of the cross, the old covenant, the memorial would stand that would say, here, God showed mercy and didn't give me what I deserve. On the new covenant side, on the New Testament side of the cross, it says, here, God showed me grace where I received what I did deserve because of the obedience of Jesus. In the Old Covenant, the obedience of one man brought the guilt and the punishment to all the land, all the nation of Israel, and it was the mercy of God that kept it from coming upon them. In the New Covenant, the obedience of one man takes away the guilt of an entire nation of people. The people did nothing wrong under David. It was David who decided to have them counted, but because of his disobedience, the whole nation fell guilty before God and was to be punished. In the New Covenant, we all were guilty, every single one of us, and Jesus did nothing wrong. And yet He takes everything that we've done wrong upon Himself and receives the punishment. In the Old Covenant, over and over again, they would build altars, they would build memorials, they would build places that were remembrance of what God had done for them and what God had been, what He had said to them. In the New Covenant, we have one memorial. Who built this memorial? Jesus. Think about it. It made Him carry His cross. Even after they'd beaten him to the point of death, even after he said that his insides were hanging out of him and people couldn't believe that he was still alive, even though his face was destroyed to the point that he no longer even looked human and his mother couldn't even recognize him, they said to him, you carry your cross. Why? Because the man, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, was about to go and build for the last time an altar that a sacrifice would be laid upon and it would stand as a memorial forever before God and before man. And as Jesus beaten carries his cross and they say, Simon, you help him. And he comes and helps him carry the cross. They don't know what they're doing, but they don't under, and they don't understand that for the last time an altar is being erected, an altar is being raised, a memorial is being raised before God. And as they laid him down on this cross to sacrifice him like they would have sacrificed so many things on so many other altars, they didn't understand that for the last time something was going to have to die so that everything else could live. 
that something was going to have to die that was innocent so that the guilt of everyone who was not innocent could be taken away because of that. See, they had to do this over and over again in the Old Covenant. Something innocent had to die to take away the guilt of the guilty. But this was the last time. And here's God building this memorial, this altar. And Jesus, the man Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, carries His cross, carries His altar, carries His memorial to the top of that hill. And He lays down upon it and freely gives up His life. They didn't kill Him. Remember, he said, nobody takes my life. I freely lay it down. I'm not doing this because I have no other way. I'm not doing this because I can't get out of this. I'm not doing this because you're stronger than me. You're greater than me because you've overtaken me. I am actually coming here and laying myself down upon this altar and giving my life freely. And so Jesus is nailed to the cross and he's raised up And he hangs there. And he dies. There was a time when Jesus was taken to this very same spot. Do you remember when that was? To the spot that God sees and looks at and it reminds him of the covenant he has with man. It reminds him of what would come. It reminds him of the, of, of what was to come, of the temple that would be there. The temple that when Jesus died, the veil is torn into two and the separation between God and man ends once and for all. And there was a time when Jesus was brought to there. Do you remember? It was when the enemy came and tempted him and he thought he was going to win. He thought because Jesus was weak, Jesus had been fasting. And what he didn't understand is that in taking Jesus up to the temple, he was taking him to that very same place of remembrance. And as Jesus stands they're looking down he sees all that has happened in this place and all that will happen in this place and there was no chance he was going to bend to the enemy at that point what was the first thing he said to him if you're the son of god turn these stones to bread i wonder what stones those were i don't know for sure but i wonder if maybe those weren't stones that were placed as an altar I wonder if the whole time he was doing these things, he wasn't reminding Jesus of the covenant that was being made between God and man from the beginning of time that he would ultimately fulfill. I wonder if in doing these things and bringing him to these places and pointing out these things to him the whole time, he wasn't just strengthening Jesus' resolve to be who God had sent him to earth to be. If you're the Son of God, take these stones and turn them to bread. Takes him to the top of the temple. Just cast yourself down. There's something about these memorials that make a difference to God. There's something about these memorials that God loves. There's a reason He takes Jacob back to the place where Jacob made a memorial where God first spoke to him when He wants to speak to him again, when He wants to change his life, when He wants to make promises to him, when He wants to declare things to him. And I promise you this, the cross is God's last and everlasting memorial that would ever be resurrected by Him. It's the place where He wants to bring us every time He wants to talk to us, every time He wants to change us, every time He wants to speak to us. It's to bring us back to that place where Jesus the Son of God laid upon a cross that was erected that stands forever. You guys understand that the cross is the most reproduced object in the world? It's in architecture. It's on clothing. It's on jewelry. It's on cars. It's everywhere you look. The telephone poles declare the cross. Every single place that you look, there's a cross. When they sent the satellite out to the farthest place that they've ever taken a picture, and it got a, a picture of the hole in the middle of a of a farthest galaxy they've ever taken a picture, when that satellite finally sent that picture back, one piece at a time, and it finally came together, what they were staring at was a cross in the center of that structure. It's everywhere. It's declaring His goodness. It's saying, this is who you are because of what I've done. It's the cross that that God looks to. And when He looks at the cross, He remembers the covenant that He's made with me and you where He said, I will forgive their sins and I'll remember them no more. 
It's where Jesus spent his, his last seconds of life here on earth and then l- gladly gave up his life so that we could have everlasting life with him. And our few seconds here on earth isn't where it ends for us. It's where everything changed. It's the cross. It's why when Jesus wants to speak to us, when God wants to speak to us, it's always through the lens of the cross. It's always through who we are now that He's come and given His life. It's never speaking to you about who you were. It's always speaking to you about who you are and who you're becoming. God is not bringing your past up to you because He said, I would remember your sin no more. He doesn't know what you're talking about. And He speaks to you on this side of the cross, which stands forever as a memorial. And when God sees... What happened in that place when he sees that cross, it reminds him over and over and over again of the covenant that he made where he said, I'll be their God and they'll be my people. And I'll take away their sin and I'll remember it no more. And they'll have eternal life forever with me. You don't deserve the punishment of God if you're born again in Christ. People walk around saying, I know what I deserve. No, you don't know what you deserve if what you're going to say is judgment and hell. Because to say that is to say that the redemption that I found in Christ isn't complete and that there was something He neglected. There's something that He left out. There's some sin that God held on to the right to judge me for. It wasn't completely. He wasn't the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. He was the Lamb of God who took away the most of the sin of the world. You do not deserve the punishment. You do not deserve the judgment. That's the, that's the Old Testament where you deserved it, but you received mercy. So you didn't get what you deserved. Now you live on this side of the cross. You live on this side of the memorial. You live on this side of this. And that says that I get what Jesus deserved because he took what I deserved. And so what you deserve is not punishment, it's not judgment, it's not wrath, unless Jesus didn't take all of it for you. What do you deserve? You deserve everything that Jesus deserved because of his obedience, because you are joint heirs with Christ. You are the righteousness of God now in Christ. Everything changed. The cross changed everything. It's such a big deal. We cannot get our minds fully around it. And it's why we say things well, like, I, I know full well what I deserve. No, you don't, because you don't understand how complete and total the redemption of Jesus was. You don't understand what God sees when He sees the cross. He doesn't see the things that you did wrong. He sees everything that Jesus did right. And you become a joint heir with Christ, seated with Him in heavenly places. You're now righteous. Remember that? Jesus didn't act sinful so that you could act righteous. He became sin so that you could become righteous. We have to believe that because if we don't believe that, then we'll act like who we think that we are. And if all I think is the best I can do is act like I'm a good person, but I'm not really a good person, I'm not really changed, sooner or later the act will wear off, the ability will wear off, and I'll start acting like who I think I am. But if I could understand this, that he became sin who knew no sin, that I might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And I understand that I am not sin inside anymore. I am now the righteousness of God inside. And what's going to come out of me would be righteousness, would be goodness, would be truth. Did I never make a mistake now? No, but that's why there's grace. Grace is there so that when I do make a mistake and act like I'm somebody that I'm not, it comes along and reminds me of who I really am. And I go back to living the way that he died so that I could. Am I perfect? No, but in his eyes I am. That's, the, I mean, that's, why it's, that's why it takes faith to believe this. That's why it's too good to be true. That's why Paul used to have to say, I know it doesn't seem like it's true, but I'm telling you it is. Because it's so good, it doesn't even seem like it could possibly be true. But the truth of the matter is, it takes faith to believe it because it's better than what we can understand or accept on our own. Because we're used to, you get what you deserve. And now we have to believe that we get what he deserved because he took what I deserved. He took it. 
long before I was even a thought in my parents' mind, Jesus Christ took every bit of punishment, every bit of judgment, every bit of condemnation, every bit of wrath that I deserved upon himself for me so that I could get every bit of the blessing, goodness, and favor of God that he deserved. Why wouldn't you trade? Why would you carry around those chains and feel like you have to walk around being judged, being condemned, and all those things? Why would you walk around holding on to that stuff? Why wouldn't you let go of it and understand that they've already been broken off you? Like Troy was saying, it's no longer wrapping around you and having control over you. It's now something that you're holding on to and you're choosing to hold on to and you're choosing to have in your life. Why wouldn't you just let it go and take hold of what He's offering, which is goodness, peace, mercy, gentleness, self-control, all the fruit of the Spirit. It's it's being able to say there's now for their for no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what the cross does every time we think, every time we look at the cross. It reminds us of the fact that the man Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life that I was incapable of so that I could receive everything that was due to Him. It's the most beautiful exchange and the most selfless love that's ever been shown is when Jesus laid Himself down. For the last time, a sacrifice was laid on an altar and a memorial was raised and it stands forever and it is, it is, it is the cross of Jesus Christ. And when we look at that cross, it reminds us of what He did and who He died so that we could become. And if we settle for less, then it's not worth it. It's not worth it for us to settle for less. It is not worth it for us to say, yeah, I believe that you know, one day when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. He died for so much more than that. You have to understand, you have to believe that Jesus didn't die so that one day you wouldn't go to heaven. I mean, you wouldn't go to hell. He died so that that day that you believe heaven could come and dwell inside of you. And that this life would just be, he said, this is eternal life, that they would know you, the one true God, and believe in me, the son whom you've sent. Eternal life begins the minute that we know God and understand that He sent His Son to die and we believe that He is our Lord and Savior and we accept Him for that and we take the gift of salvation and righteousness that He died to give to us. So in the Old Covenant, everything that was physical now is spiritual in the New Covenant. We've been talking about that from the very beginning, right? You know, the Old Covenant, the circumcision was actually the cutting of human flesh. The New Covenant says you've been circumcised, but not by human hands, but by the Holy Spirit with the cutting away of the flesh from your heart. So everything that was done externally and the physically is now done spiritually and internally in us in the New Covenant. And so... What about us, right? Like, do we need to make memorials? Do we need to? I believe that it's good for us to build memorials, to build monuments, to let moments burn themselves into our minds. Over and over again, when God did something, when God revealed something, when God changed people, He would, they would, in their minds, they would, I mean, they would physically build an altar, and I think we should do the same thing, just internally. Or you could do it externally if you wanted. I don't care if you wanted to get a bunch of stones and write down what God did and make a stack of them every time God does something for you, every time God speaks something to you, every time that you experience God in a way that changes your life. If you want to build a monument to it physically, that's fine. But it's more important that it's internally so that everywhere we go, we carry that with us rather than having to go back to that place and see it to be reminded of it. I believe it's something that should burn itself into our minds and into our memories. And I believe he wants it to, too. Matthew 16, 5, Jesus is with the disciples. It says, and the disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they'd forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch out and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began to discuss this among themselves, saying, He said that because we didn't bring any bread. 
But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets full you picked up or the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets full you picked up? Jesus looks at them and, and they're, they're concerned because they forgot to bring anything to eat with them. They don't have any bread, but they have Jesus with them, the same Jesus who multiplied food, the same Jesus who put a coin in a fish's mouth and when they caught the, the fish, they had the coin. The, the same Jesus who promised that he he would provide and protect them. He's with them physically in the flesh. And he says to them to be careful of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And what he was talking about was unbelief and self-righteousness and legalism that was creeping its way into their lives as they were starting to look at themselves like I'm a good person because I did this or I'm a bad person because I did that. And so he's telling them, be careful of that because a little bit of that will spoil everything. And he tells them that and they say, he said that because we didn't bring any bread. Because leavening was something that you, leaven was something you would use for bread. Jesus looks at them and says, you men of little faith. In other words, it's not okay. That wasn't like a a loving term, you men of little faith. It wasn't like he's like, oh, you men of little faith. He didn't do that. It wasn't like a loving thing. He looks at them and he's giving them a rebuke. He says, you men of little faith, don't you remember what I did Two, uh, two chapters before this, he wouldn't have said that, right? Because he didn't know they were writing the Bible then. You know? But don't you remember what happened a little bit ago? Don't you remember recently when we only had this many loaves and I fed 5,000 people when they had that many loaves and I fed 4,000 people? In other words, these things that I do in your life are not simply so you have a cool story to put on Twitter or on Facebook. It's so that you understand who I am and that burns a place into you to the place where you can never again fear the way you feared before you knew me the way that you know me. You can't be afraid that you're not going to have bread and you're not going to have anything to eat once I've showed you that it doesn't matter what you have. I'm capable of being everything that you need and providing for all of your needs. It's not okay. He said it's a lack of faith. Why? Because they didn't understand. They let those stories just be a cool story rather than actually be a memorial and a monument that they erect in their lives that says, if I'm ever in a place where I need something, he's with me and he'll provide everything that I need. There shouldn't have been any question in their minds in in Jesus' opinion that they should have been fearful or doubted or worried that they didn't bring any bread because he had already proven to them that it didn't matter what they had. What mattered was what he had. So he gives them a rebuke for it. We We once had a guy that came and lived with us. He was a homeless guy and he lived with my wife and I for almost three months and and it was really awesome to see the change in his life. And, and he really was changing for the better. And, 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 I, and by the way, I just spoke to him last week. He called me. Um, and, and I'll get back to that in a second. But, but he lived with us for, for months. And finally, there was a time coming where we had to go out of town on vacation. And, and we weren't sure about leaving him alone, but we felt like we should because we didn't want him to think that we didn't trust him after he'd lived with us for three months. And and we did trust him um, as far as, you know, with our stuff and at our home. I mean, my wife's jewelry was all in the house. Our, our Everything that's valuable to us worldly-wise was in our home, and he had access to every bit of it, and he was home alone sometimes, and nothing ever was missing. And we, we just trusted him. Maybe we trusted God more than we trusted him and just trusted that if we were doing what God called us to do, that it wasn't going to hurt us and that even if he did take something, that God would work that to the good anyway. So, so we went out of town on vacation, and we left him at our house alone. And while we were gone... He went back to drinking, which was the thing that kept him on the streets since he was 12 years old. And we showed up, and he just looked different. You could tell something had changed, and he wasn't the same as the man that we left behind. And 
he was ashamed and you could tell he was hiding something and he was embarrassed and I started talking to him about the things he said he was going to do while we were gone that he didn't do and he said see I knew this would happen I knew the day would come where I wouldn't be good enough for you and I said whoa 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 it has nothing to do with you being good enough I'm just asking you what happened he said no you you hate me now because I said man I don't I don't hate you at all I love you you know that he said, no, I knew sooner or later I'd, I'd, I'd be me. You know, he said his name. I'd be blank. And, and, and I knew sooner or later this would happen. And I knew sooner or later this would all come to an end. It was too good to be true. I said, man, nothing's come to an end. You still, we want you to live here with us. We want you to, you know, he, every night you eat dinner with us at the table like our family. When we go somewhere, you go with us. None of that's changed. I'm just wondering what happened because you're not the same guy that you were when we left. And he got really angry and he stormed off. And we didn't know where he was and... I was driving with a friend and I asked, I prayed and I said, you know, God, I really want to find him. I'm worried about him. Where is he? And I knew right away. He's behind the, the old abandoned Kmart. I just knew it. It came to me like that. So me and my friend pulled back in there and there's an old walk-in cooler back behind that Kmart. And I saw one of the sheets of metal had been peeled up and bent away. And I stuck my head in and it smelled like urine and, and everything else. And, you know, just, it just was disgusting. And he came staggering out of there. And he's got a big gash across his forehead. He'd gotten so drunk he'd fallen over and smashed into a curb. And he was blood was all over his face. It was caked in his hair and his ears. And he's covered in his own stuff. And, and I said, man, what happened? And he said, I don't know. He could hardly talk. And so I grabbed him and brought him into the car. And we brought him home and put him in the shower and helped him get cleaned up. And talked to him afterwards and said, man, we love you and we just, we can't stand to see you like this. Said, look, look at, look at where this leads. This is not who you are. This is not who you want to be. And he said, I know, I'm sorry. And two days later, he lived at our house for two more days after that and he disappeared again. And we showed up to church one day during the week and the church had been broken into and a guitar had been stolen, an expensive guitar that was Merle's that he had left here. And the coffee maker, he loved coffee and he loved sugar in his coffee. The coffee pot, the coffee had been made and there was coffee spilled and every bit of the sugar was gone out of the sugar bowl and there was a sugary mess on the countertop. And I just knew instantly who did it. And so we, we had to call the police because, you know, we had to file a report for our insurance. And, and it was heartbreaking because you just... You, you, you want to see people live better, not because our stuff had been stolen. And instead of being angry at him, I was angry for him because he's living so far below the life that God's called him to live. And he's falling right back into the same habits that are going to get him back into the same place that he was. Living under a bridge with no hope and no future as far as he was concerned. And so the police came, took our report. And a while later, Merle called me and said, hey, um, he's up here at the church, and he's gone. I'm just—I'm going to close up with this, and I can get the rest of the stuff. But he said he's up here, and, and he's gone. And and uh, I came up, and there he was, and he was laying in the back, and he just looked really, really bad. And he's got a blanket, and he's on the concrete, and there's you know stuff everywhere. He's it's just smelly and nasty back there. And I went back, and I took his hands, and I said, "What are you doing?" He said, oh, "I'm trying to kill myself with alcohol." I said, well, you look like you're about to succeed. And he said, I hope so. I said, did you, did you break in here a while ago? Yeah, I'm so sorry. 
that's okay. I said, do you know where the guitar went? I leaned it up against a wall somewhere. I passed out drunk. When I woke up, it wasn't there. That's the God's honest truth. I don't know where it is. If I did, I'd tell you. Okay, no problem. So I'm sitting there, and I said, so what's your plan? What are you going to do? He said, oh, I'm going to go get some more alcohol, and I'm going to drink till I'm dead. I didn't know what to do with him at that point. I could bring him home, but I can't stay with him constantly. And if you have someone who wants to kill themselves, maybe they'd find a different way to do it. So I called the police, and I said, listen, there's a guy here. We love him. He's just, he's tempting to kill himself drinking and he's, he looks like he's about to succeed. I mean, it's just, he's yellow and, and the police came and they picked him up and they ended up, they ended up, um, when they fingerprinted him, finding out he was the one who broke in here to the church and they called me and they said, what do you want to do? And I said, I don't, I don't want him to sit in prison. They said, well, we would recommend for him maybe some kind of a treatment program, a counseling program or something like that. And I said, yeah, that would be awesome. They said, there's an expense um, that, that is involved with that, though. And I said, it doesn't matter. The church will pay for that. We just want them to get better. We just want them to get whole. They said, well, sometimes people have sponsorships where, you know, programs have donated money and that covers. And I said, well, if they don't, the church will cover it. You know, we, we, we would love to help him and, and see him get whole. And, and so he went through that. And he just called me the other day, last week. He said, hey, I just wanted to tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm all done. I'm a free man, completely free and clear of everything that's gone on. and I'm sober. I'm living in a, in a men's program with other guys who are recovering from something like that. And I'm going to church. I'm reading my Bible. And uh, he said, I just, I felt like I should call you and ask you, you know, how things are going. And I just wanted to let you know that I'm doing well. And I said, oh, that's awesome, man. But when the day that, and that's the end of the story, right? But, but the day that the guitar was stolen, and, and, and if you don't know this about our church, um, we, we, we try to do a lot of things to help people and, and outreach to people. And we, we give money and we've helped, you know, move people out of homes and into, I mean, out from bridges and into homes and turn power on and help with mortgages. And we do stuff for people inside the church as well when we can. And, and our church isn't a rich church, you know, we don't have a ton of money and and so when we realized the guitar was stolen, we realized, well, the deductible for our insurance is $1,500. The guitar is going to cost, like, you know, a little bit more than that. We might as well just go ahead and pay for the guitar out of pocket rather than doing the insurance claim and having the insurance go up. And I'm thinking, man, where are we going to get the money from? And so we, we had the, you know, we had the money and, and we wrote a check out for the new guitar. And I got home that day and I went to my mailbox I opened up my mailbox, and then there's a letter handwritten out to me. And I opened it up, and a check falls out onto the ground. And I picked it up, and there's a check for $15,000. Ten times the amount that we were going to have to spend for the guitar that day. And then there was a note in there, and it said, Even though you don't know me, and even though I don't come to your church, I want to give this to your church because I know what you guys are doing, and I believe in it, and I want to support it. And someone who's never even been here hasn't been since. And he wrote that letter five days before that. He signed the check five days before that. Long before anyone had ever broken in here, long before the thing was missing, long before I knew there was a need, long before a check had to be written, God was already providing the way for it to be taken care of and then some. And on that day, there was a memorial built inside of me that said, God will provide. God will, if we will be faithful to do what He's called us to do, we will never have to worry about how we're going to do it because He will provide. He's more committed to us reaching the people that we're reaching than, than we are even. 
And that's the memorial that when we look ahead, I can't even look at things the same anymore. I, I don't have the ability to fear the way I used to. I don't have the ability to worry the way I used to because of that memorial that's burned inside of me. That God revealed Himself to me that day as the God who provides. And something inside of me changed. And it would be just like the disciples if I was to start freaking out now about money when we need money for things. And I imagine if Jesus was walking with me physically, He would look at me and say, Oh, you man of little faith, don't you remember what I did with the guitar? Why are you worried about that? How could you think that way? Don't you remember? I think it's time that we build memorials inside of us. I think it's time. There was times when I was asked to speak somewhere and I felt like God told me to go and I, I felt so inadequate. I felt so you know, unworthy of going there and speaking. I didn't know what I was going to even talk about right up to walking up onto the stage one time. I had no idea what I was going to talk about. And I walked up there and simply shared as God gave me words to share. And the response of people that came forward and gave their lives to Christ and, and that wanted to be born again, wanted a relationship with God as a result of it, made me turn around and look at the people I was with and say, holy smokes. It blew my mind, but it set a memorial in my mind that said, if I will just say yes to everything he tells me to say yes to, he'll do everything that I can't. So now I don't worry that I'm not going to have words if he's told me to go. I know that he's faithful. I can't even get myself freaked out like I used to. I still get butterflies. I still get nervous, but it's an anticipation of what God's going to do, not a worry that he won't because of what he's done in my life. I think it's time that we start building some memorials in our lives and looking to things and saying, this is the time that God did this. This is the time that God did that. And not just looking at them and saying, this is what he did, but allowing them to change how we see him and how we see things around us and say, because he did this, I know he'll do this. Because he promised this and because of who he is here, I can't even look at that problem the same way and freak out because of what he did there changed the way that I look at things because I remember what he did. I haven't forgotten. And it starts with the cross. That's where it all begins. Because at the cross is where new life with Him begins. And every time we start to freak out and every time we start to feel like a failure and every time we start to feel like we're insignificant or we're nothing, we can look at the cross. The cross did not give you value. It proved you were valuable. It didn't say, Jesus is going to die so that you can become valuable. It says, Jesus died because you are valuable. My life was spent for you because you are valuable, not in a hopes that you would become valuable. If you ever start to wonder if you're loved, you can simply look back at the cross and you can realize that greater love is not a man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. For a good man, maybe some would lay down their lives. But who would lay down their life for someone who's not a good man, who may not even love them in return? who may despise what they've done and walk away from it, who would do that? Greater love is not a man than this, that he would do this. If you ever feel like you're insignificant, if you ever feel like you're unloved, if you ever feel like you've done too much, you've gone too far, you've said too much, you've lived too wrongly, you've done all those things, you can simply look at the cross and let every one of those fears and concerns be erased as you see the love of God hanging on a cross, dying, giving his life for you. Because when God sees you, that memorial stands out in His mind too. He doesn't deal with you based on what you've done. He deals with you based on who you are because of what Jesus did and because of who you are in Christ. God, I thank You for Your Word. I I thank You for the memorial that we have. God, I ask for just encounters with You that would prove over and over again to us who You are and who You want to be in our lives. God, that we would see You and we would see the world differently because that we would be marked and we would be changed, God. But more importantly than that, 
God, that every one of us would have the memorial of the cross as a turning point in our lives, as something to look at and point to that proves our value, that proves our worth, and that says who we are. I'm going to just ask two things, and I won't, we won't embarrass you. We're not going to ask you to come up front even. We're not going to do any of those things. But if everyone could just not look at the person next to them, because I don't want anyone to not do this because of the person next to them. But if, if you would say, you know what, to be honest with you, I, I can't look at that cross and think those things because I've never accepted what was done on that cross. I've never given my life. I've never actually said, I want to be forgiven be the Lord and Savior of my life. You know, that's, that is a lifelong journey with Christ, but every journey starts with the first step, and the first step is to acknowledge what Jesus did on the cross for you, acknowledge your need for a Savior, and ask Him to forgive you and be the Lord of your life. If you want to do that, you can do that today, and things change in an instant. You still have a whole life ahead of you to walk out, but that turning point, that cross, that memorial that's erected in your life that you can look to every time, every day, is placed there by God. So if that's you and you'd like to, to pray that today, like I said, no one looking around, just raise your hand up real quick and, and we'll pray with you and for you. And it's not a simple thing, but it is. It just takes belief. It just takes faith that Jesus really did what He said He would do, that God really is who He says that He is and that He really does beckon and offer a better way to live free from that condemnation. And the second thing is, anybody need to do that today? If you do, just raise your hand where you are. We're all... Yeah, one person. Okay. Is there anybody else? I promise it won't be an embarrassing, humiliating thing. Thank you for raising up your hand. Thank you for being bold enough to do that. Is there anyone else before we move on to the next thing? I don't want to leave anyone behind or have anyone leave here regretting. Okay, the second thing is, is if you've done that before, but you feel like one of those people that Troy was talking about earlier where you know you've been set free, but yet you still feel like there's chains and you realize you've just been walking around holding on to these things and you just really want to let go. If there's anybody who feels like that, it feels like they're walking around holding on to chains, realizing today that those chains don't hold them, that they're holding those chains, and and you just want to let go of them once and for all and be free from it. Is there anybody here that would like to do that for anything in their lives? Just raise your hand where you are. Yeah, there's hands going up. Just raise it up where we can see it, and then, yeah, put it down, and that's good. We see those hands going up. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. That one person that raised their hand that would like to, to, to be born again, to be a new creation in Christ and make Him their Lord and Savior, I'm going to find you after the service. But for those people who raised their hands up, we're just going to pray a prayer. And it's really simple, and I'm not even going to lead you in this prayer and say, repeat after me, because I'd like it to be the cry of our hearts. But right now, we're just all going to pray for, if everybody here could begin to pray for those people who are saying, today I just want to let go of stuff. Today I just want to, I want to be free, and I want to let go, and I don't want to hold on to that stuff anymore. It's not what I want. I want to open my hands and allow everything to fall so that I can receive everything that He has to give. Just begin to pray for those people. And I'm going to just encourage you, if you're one of those people that raised your hand and you said you want to be free from that stuff, just pray a simple prayer saying, God, I give this to you. Take it from me. Something like that. And then release it and understand that you no longer have to carry that around. You no longer have to live under the weight of that burden. You no longer have to walk around feeling like you're in chains because you no longer have them. And it's as simple as just letting go and understanding that that's not who you are, that that thing that you did or those that addiction that you had or that... That, that thing that was done to you or whatever it is that keeps you feeling like you're in bondage, it's gone and dealt with. It's washed under the sea of Jesus' blood. As if it never happened. Removed from Him as far as the east is from the west. If that's you, just pray that prayer right now and ask Him 
Tell him that you're letting go and ask him just to fill that void with him. Yeah, God, I thank you for that. I thank you that you're way more faithful to us than we are to you, that you're way more committed to us than we are to you, that you love us more than we love you. And God, that you who have begun a good work inside of us will be faithful to see it through and complete it. God, that you never intended for us to be forgiven but not be free. That death is not our Savior, that Jesus is. That death is not the thing that brings freedom from sin. It's Jesus who brought freedom from sin. He's our Savior. He's our liberator. He's our rescue. He's our strength. God, I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, I would just encourage you guys this week as you go home and throughout this week to just really in your mind think about the things that God's done in your life. Think about significant things that have happened. Think about turning points. And if you need to write them down somewhere, you know, if you need to go somewhere in your yard and start a little pile of rocks, if that's what it takes. But more importantly, to write them down on the inside. That word have I hid in my heart that I would not sin against thee. If you can just write that stuff down on the inside of you, let it be burned inside of you that this is who God is. This is who He said He will be. This is who He's called me. And let those be turning points in your life where you say, on this day God said, on this day God did, on this day this happened. And you can know that those memorials will change the way that you look forward because of what's behind you. Rather than looking behind you and seeing all the bad and all the, all the negative and everything like that, David said, surely goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. If I turn around and look behind me, all I see is the goodness and the mercy of God. That's amazing. And I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Look behind you. You see piles of stones. Their goodness, their testaments to His goodness and His mercy. All that stuff you thought you'd see when you turned around, you realize has been wiped away and washed away. It's not there anymore. The only thing that keeps it there is your memory that allows it to remain. Because David said, goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. Thank you guys for coming this morning. We love you guys. Um, if you need prayer for anything, there'll be people from our prayer team up front right now to pray for you. If you need healing physically, emotionally, spiritually, whatever you need, if you need prayer for anything, please don't leave this room. That person that raised their hand earlier, I'm going to find you real quick and, and talk to you. But if you need prayer for anything, don't leave regretting that you didn't get prayed for. Don't leave feeling like you're still carrying a burden or a weight. They'll be up front here and they'd love to pray for you. They'd love to speak into your life. They'd love to be a blessing to you. So if you need that, come find them. Find some people you don't know. Say hi to them. The marriage service is tonight at 6 o'clock. We will have the round tables and the chairs set up. We are going to be discussing healthy listening. There's a difference between hearing and listening. And a lot of it has to do with the way that we respond. And so we're going to be talking about that tonight. We're we'll going to be playing a game. We're going to be having fun. There will be coffee and dessert. There's child care provided. It starts at 6. If you want to get here a little bit early just to hang out and get your, your food and stuff ready, we'll see you tonight at 6 o'clock.